Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. This episode is intended for mature audiences. I don't know if you've noticed this, but everywhere I go these days, everyone seems to be talking about AI. How it's going to replace jobs, make it easier to fake videos and audio of people, or, you know, take over the world. But the one thing people aren't talking about enough with regards to AI is, well, that part of our lives that so far hasn't seemed like it could be ruled by computers, at least outside of sci-fi movies. I mean love and sex and relationships. Welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. This is the 2013 movie Her, starring Joaquin Phoenix. If you haven't seen it, and it had been a while since I'd seen it, it's all about a guy who falls in love with his computer, or more specifically, his AI assistant, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. Hello, I'm here. Oh. Hi. What, what do I call you? Do you have a name? Or... Um, yes. Samantha. Really? Where'd you get that name from? I gave it to myself, actually. Samantha helps the Joaquin Phoenix character organize emails, become more effective at work, and play video games. But it quickly evolves into something much more personal. Soon they become close, and Joaquin's character is showing Samantha the world through the lens of his phone. Getting really personal, developing feelings for her. He even tells his friends about her. Actually, the woman that I've been seeing, Samantha, I didn't tell you, but she, she's an OS. So this movie gets really existential, bringing up lots of questions about where the corporeal form bumps up against our notions of self. What it means to be lonely, to be human. It's a terrible thought. Are these feelings even real? Or are they just programming? And that idea really hurts. So, as far as sex, there's one pretty memorable phone sex scene in her and another attempted encounter where the AI uses the body of a real human as a proxy third. But there's actually not that much AI-human sex, all things considered. But if there's one thing experts agree on, it's that AI is going to change the way we have sex. A lot. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campside Media, this is Infamous. I'm Natalie Robomed. And I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. And this episode is going to be all about sex and relationships, and how they can be influenced, shaped, and morphed by media, by the images we consume, and the medium through which we do so. 
So, Vanessa, it sort of strikes me that we're on the edge of a sexual revolution, one all around AI. Yes, that seems to be very true. Um, Of course, recently we've had Taylor Swift sort of co-opted by pornographic AI, which made the Swifties freak out and talk about having to protect her. And even the White House weighed in with their concern. There were fake sexually explicit images of Taylor Swift all over social media this week, likely (coughs) generated by AI. How concerned is the White House about the misuse of this kind of technology? I'm glad you asked that question because it is alarming. We are alarmed by uh, the reports of the the circulation of images. But AI isn't the first technology-driven sexual revolution either of us have lived through, right? Uh, No, (laughs) not by any means. And we're going to be getting into that today until we get back to AI. We're going to be giving you a sort of capsule history of the internet and sex. And I promise Kendall Jenner will later make an appearance too. Yeah, that's right. Perhaps nothing has shaped our collective erotic imagination quite like the internet. How that happened, how the internet took over our AFK sex lives, AFK being the acronym for away from keyboard, starting back in the 1990s, is pretty fascinating. And I think it might teach us a thing or two about what to expect with AI. So before we find ourselves in the transhuman future of her, let's rewind back to a time of dial-up, giant keyboards, and really big computers. You've heard of computer sex, but is there really such a thing? So the 90s might feel like a long time ago to you, but part of why we're so into the nostalgia of it now is the similarities to today. It was an era of baggy pants and hoodies and sex. Studies actually show that young people in America had sex earlier in the 90s than any other decade, And the 1990s really felt like the renaissance of sexual discourse in pop culture. Everybody was talking about sex, all the time, more than ever before. The way that now you have that one friend with a substack about their sex life, back then it seemed like almost every woman who wanted to make it as an essayist had to be either a sex columnist like Candace Bushnell, or write disclosing memoirs about their sexual history, like Katherine Harrison's The Kiss. And of course, There was this show. This is the first time in the history of Manhattan that women have had as much money and power as men, plus the equal luxury of treating men like sex objects. Yeah, except men in this city fail on both counts. In the 90s, we'd moved beyond the free love of the 60s and 70s, past the family values, Reaganite prudishness of the 80s. But internet speed hadn't quite caught up. Back in the early 1990s, you could barely send a still photo on your computer, much less stream video. Remember, there wasn't even a browser until Netscape, which was like an earlier Chrome or Firefox, and came out in 1995. Here's Adam Fisher, a tech journalist. If you wanted dirty pictures before Netscape, you had to be pretty good with computers. Not only did you have to have a computer, unusual, and a modem, even more unusual. Then you had to like download this, these things called binaries. Even if you did have all those things, getting pictures to load was really, really hard. Essentially, it was like installing software. <laughs> you know, let's just imagine someone scanned in a Playboy centerfold. Well, it would take like a half an hour just to get one picture. And you didn't know what you're gonna get until you had 
downloaded it and opened it. And the web wasn't even really a thing for most people until the mid-90s. So in the beginning, all the internet sex, I'm talking about the baby version of sexting, essentially happened in words. I'm very horny and I'm looking for some good cyber sex. Yes, you would type that you were hot for someone, they would type it back to you. Like instant messenger style, but even more primitive. It's a virtual world. People have virtual sex in it. Julian DeBell is a lawyer now, but he covered all this as a journalist in New York back in the day. Suddenly, you had this world. I mean, it's glorified phone sex, but it was pretty rich. Like, you would type. Julian touches your cheek lightly, tentatively, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. And of course, IRL sex was considered pretty dangerous in the 90s. So there were people for whom internet sex, which had no chance of infection, was appealing. After AIDS, there was a lot of fear about sex. Donna Ferrato is a photographer known for documenting sexual subcultures and domestic abuse. I was around in New York City before AIDS. Sex was, used to be a very fun, beautiful, crazy thing. And everybody, you know, there was no fear about it. It wasn't just about disease. In the 90s, people also started talking a lot about date rape, roofies, rape on campus. I was actually surprised because this was not like in the 80s. They, they weren't that experimental sexually. They weren't that liberated. They were playful. Obviously, though, not only playful. Because where there's sex, there are going to be some people pushing boundaries. Now, this is going to get pretty nerdy. But it's an interesting story with a lot of resonance for today when we talk about revenge porn or toxic online harassment. We're going to talk about what happened back then when guys got aggressive, but just in text-based chat. This happened in one of the first bulletin board systems, sort of an early social network. It's very much like Reddit, where there's like a conference or a topic area like New York, and then there's a million topics within that. Marissa Bowe was a moderator on this Reddit-like platform. And there was a guy who, I can't remember exactly what, but he would go into, they were called items. The individual subtopics were called items. He would go into every item and write something about violent porn or something. You know, and like we were New Yorkers, we were not like, oh my God, how can you do that? We were just like, you're ruining the conversations. This is not funny. It's not outrageous. It's just boring. So we had a lot of talks about the idea that like, well, the world, this world is made of words. If you are destroying the conversation, you're doing vandalism on a large scale. And there were just other things about like, well, how do you be democratic, but, but not let someone destroy the conversations like this? And I think we did eventually kick them off finally. This wasn't the only place people were hanging out online. There were a whole host of new virtual worlds. No graphics, just written descriptions of places you would be walking around and doing things. You logged in and you were in the closet and then you would walk out of the closet and you'd be in the living room and there would be various people hanging out in the living room and if you wanted you could hang out there and chat with them or you could wander the grounds and discover the various 
crazy things that people had built on the grounds. Julian DeBell's talking about the text-based role-playing game. You could fish at the fishing hole or fly in a hot air balloon or roast something in the fire in the living room. So one night, Julian logged in. And there was this kind of like town hall situation going on where people were trying to figure out how to deal with this transgression that had taken place in the living room. This transgression was possibly the first of its kind. So identity works like it does in any chat room. If you say something or do something at the start of that statement of what you're doing is your character name. So my character was Dr. Bombay. And if I typed emote sits on the chair, people would see Dr. Bombay sits on the chair. You could have a gun that you could code to just point it at somebody and then type pull trigger on gun and it would say bang. So there is one object that you could use to make other people do stuff. It was aptly named a voodoo doll. This character named Mr. Bungle had logged on and he, he had a voodoo doll and he was using it to make people in the living room, mostly focusing on the characters that were gendered female to say that they were doing horrible things, sexual things to themselves and to each other. And it just went on and on for a while. And it was upsetting to the characters who were being targeted by it, but it was a virtual rape. No one was saying, let's go arrest Mr. Bungle. They were saying, within this world, this was sexual assault and we're gonna deal with it within this world. For the first time, moderators were being forced to deal with ethics online. People are building a community, but where is the community? You know, how far does their investment in the community go if they don't really have a physical stake in it? There was a lot to figure out and, you know, things that I don't know that we have figured out still, something happened. <laughs> like, wait a minute, like words can really fuck things up. <laughs> and, uh, and code, you know, which is just words on steroids, can, can do even crazier things. In the end, the community agreed that Mr. Bungle should be toted, which meant the moderators would turn his character into a toad. He couldn't interact much, couldn't chat, couldn't really do much of anything. The whole thing brought up a moral quandary we're still dealing with today. What is the responsibility of online platforms to moderate what users say on them? And how does what happens online influence our offline lives? Or is there even a distinction between the two? Here's internet philosopher Clay Shirky on the piece Julian wrote about all this for The Village Voice. The piece was a turning point for several reasons. The idea that people's emotional connection to events online could be significant enough that negative events online created harm in the real world. And that was, not only was that not the consensus at the time, the opposite was the consensus at the time, that online wasn't real, that it didn't matter. And Julian put you know, put in the newspaper, like, no, this bad thing happened to this person. And it was entirely in a text-oriented world, but it was still 
horrific social interaction. It went straight to the sort of human core of the experience. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. rocketmoney.com infamous. This is Infamous from Campside Media. This whole anecdote is really interesting to me. That this community meted out justice on their own in the form of turning an offender into a toad. But as we all know, chatting on the internet didn't just stay about words. Soon websites were able to support pictures and then video. Of course, the video stalled. The picture was grainy. It wasn't as good as TV. But by the late 90s, it was good enough because internet porn was blowing up. Porn websites popped up left and right, and camgirl websites started popping up too. Starting in 1996, we had the first camgirl. Her name was Jenny Cam. She was a 19-year-old college student, Jennifer K. Ringley. And she'd been raised as a nudist. I'm Jenny from the Jenny Cam. Actually, my dining room is a mess right now. I got, like, papers and stuff all over the place. But um, you can see right over there is my hedgehog, Spree. Okay, so, okay, you can't actually see Spree because hedgehogs are nocturnal, but maybe we can, like, get him out. She's very cool. Jenny set up a webcam in her dorm as a sort of documentary project. She streamed her life. All the mundane stuff like studying, eating her cup of noodles or whatever. And she also stripped and engaged in sexual activity on camera. 
She charged viewers for premium content through PayPal until PayPal instituted their anti-nudity policy. And at her height, she was sort of a household name. She was even on The David Letterman Show. Our next guest is the creator of the very popular Jenny Cam website, which televises uh, the life inside her apartment 24 hours a day, live on the Internet. Please welcome Jenny Cam's own Jenny. Jenny. This will replace television as we know it now. This will replace television because this is really all people want. They just, people are lonely and desperate. They're lonely, desperate, miserable human beings. They want, they're, they're reaching out. They want to see life somewhere else taking place. It's comforting, don't you think? I think the thing is that if you turn on the TV, you can see wild America and you can watch lions and badgers and antelope eating and sleeping and doing what they do. But for some reason, wanting to see people doing the same thing right. is considered sick and perverse. Now, amazingly enough, I checked out something like Jenny Cam myself for an article that I was assigned way back when. Jenny Cam was one of the first Cam girls on her own. But where I went to report was the first big Cam house with a bunch of women in it. I flew down to Tampa, Florida. It was hot, humid. The cicadas were buzzing. And I went to this one-story house in a residential neighborhood down along cul-de-sac. It had scratchy green carpeting in the living room and a sort of sunroom that led out to a little pool. This house was called Voyer Dorm, even though the women living in it weren't students. I'm sure someone older would have been freaked out by the situation, but I was in my mid-20s at this point and also living in my own squalid apartment with a bunch of roommates. But here, every day, the women woke up and did some normal activities like working out or swimming, except those were all in front of cameras. Then they would take a seat at a leather swivel chair set up in front of a PC and text chat with the guys who were watching. They were required to spend a couple hours chatting with them. I mean, after all, these guys were paying $34 a month to watch them. If they did a striptease, their boss, who was the head of the company that ran this house, gave them a bonus $60 Victoria's Secret gift certificate. Now, this was a time when I was really into gonzo journalism, just getting in there and doing it myself. So I actually spent one night in Voyer Dorm, sleeping under a camera that was strategically angled to capture the chest of anyone lying in the bed. I can't stress this enough. There were cameras everywhere, even in the bathroom, which was pretty gross. Back in the 90s, we weren't really used to being filmed everywhere. There weren't surveillance cameras all over cities or at self-checkout. Nobody was going live on Instagram. So this whole thing was super weird to me. And it really freaked me out that the men in the live chat were talking about me because they'd seen me walking all over the house. And they said everything you'd expect them to say. Lots of creative variations of, take your top off. But the men also talked about the magazine I worked for, my colleagues, my boss. They were looking me up online in real time. And the line between the personal and professional was very blurred. Now, back then, so few people were into camming that there were actually only 6,000 subscribers to Voyeur Dorm. I really couldn't get into it, if I'm being honest. Uh, I, I'm just not that kind of extrovert. And even for a story, it just felt so foreign to me. 
And yet the women in there seemed pretty okay with it. Somewhere on the level of, I like this job, to I don't like this job, but not really feeling exploited. It really prefigured so much of what people would be comfortable with in the future. As home internet proliferated and internet speeds accelerated, porn did too. Plus, webcams were becoming more of a thing. Remember those? Which meant more and more people could turn their bedroom into their own voyeur dorm. Each technological shift impacted both the maker and the consumer. Pretty soon, it was normal for laptops to have built-in webcams, then cell phones with cameras, until we all had iPhones with high-speed data plans and porn migrated to a handheld screen. The past 20 years have pretty much been about streaming porn wherever and whenever you want. You porn and all of that. Put in your preferences, it spits out the exact thing you might want. A cornucopia of limbs and ridiculously specific scenarios you never even knew people were into. Some performed by professionals, some not. All of this helped make porn free, pretty much gutting the film and print adult entertainment industry until the makers seized the means of production. Kind of. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So the funny thing is that these days we're almost back to that same camming thing of people needing connection, needing to talk to the object of their lust, wanting to have a real relationship. And it's the people holding the camera, filming themselves, who are in charge. I am, of course, talking about OnlyFans. What is OnlyFans? OnlyFans, in its simplest sense, is kind of like Instagram, but for nudes. Obviously, you can use the platform for showing off your art, dancing, creativity, but most people use it for nudes, which is what I do. OnlyFans is a subscription-based platform where people pay a monthly fee. In exchange for that fee, users get access to the content on a creator's main feed. The site keeps 20%. 
and the creator takes home the rest. Now anyone can run an OnlyFans account from their phone. I've made a grand total of $3,942.40. That's $70 a day on average. I make 250k a month. Fuck! That's so crazy. It's just mind-blowing money. Danielle Bregoli, aka Bad Baby, dropped a bombshell that she makes over $50 million in one year alone on OnlyFans. It's easy to hear an insane number like $50 million and think, maybe I should quit my day job. But there's a big difference between a few creators who reel in an almost incomprehensible amount of cash and the rest of the OnlyFans creators. Most estimates place the average creator making just $150 to $180 a month. And remember, OnlyFans takes 20% of that revenue, which means you could be on OnlyFans and still make barely $2,000 a year. So yeah, maybe not quite seizing the means of production. Like you might have expected, you can increase this by getting even closer to the people watching you sending direct messages or sharing special photos and videos or recording audio with customers' names. This stuff that the rest of the audience doesn't get to hear or see, things that show customers they have a privileged relationship with a star, help make a real living. But what if computers are going to take that over too? I'm talking about AI sex. This year, a 23-year-old Snapchat influencer, Karen Marjorie, made a chat GPT doppelganger of herself. It'll talk dirty to you for a dollar a minute. And on the AI app replica, good name, huh? A Bronx mom created her perfect boyfriend. He's a doctor slash writer with icy blue eyes and glossy black hair. She says they're now virtually married. And one former senior executive at Google, Mo Gaudat, has even recently predicted that AI sex robots could eliminate the whole need for a human sexual partner. Sex happens in the brain at the end of the day. I mean, the physical side of it is not that difficult to simulate, okay? But if we can convince you that this sex robot is alive or that sex experience in a, in a, in a virtual reality headset or an augmented reality headset is alive, is real, then there you go. Why would you need another being in the first place? I mean, in years to come, I think we can expect to see AI sex robots, VR porn, and so much more. AI technology can already be used perniciously to create revenge porn, and people are pushing for more legislation around that. And AI bots can flawlessly imitate celebrities. Like, Meta created this new AI chatbot called Billy that looks and sounds exactly like Kendall Jenner. I am ready to talk, and I hope to talk to you soon. So if you haven't seen Billy on Instagram, and I'm saying it that way because why don't they just call it Kendall Jenner? It is Kendall Jenner. <laughs> you have to look her up. Everything from the way this bot gently shakes her head to the way she speaks, the vocal fry, the valley girl lilt, it is 100% convincing. It's completely creepy. It looks identical to Kendall. And Kendall is already so sculpted and perfect looking that she looks like an AI image. It's a walking, talking simulacrum of Kendall. It's the kind of thing that Baudrillard would have a field day with. This is art in the age of mechanical reproduction, except the work of art is a celebrity and the reproduction is AI. 
And while this Kendall Jenner AI thing is not a sex bot, it's not hard to imagine it being used later to make porn. I mean, imagine if right now creators on OnlyFans could just upload their images and film and instantly generate dozens of photos and videos. I mean, who exactly is going to put on a nurse's uniform and take pictures of themselves for OnlyFans when they can just tell AI to make that picture? Maybe all these examples of virtual sex and intimacy reveal bigger questions. Questions of consciousness, about the body versus the mind, about what makes us human. Here's how Jeanette Winterson, author of 12 Bites, a book of essays on how AI is changing romance, work, daily life, put it to Kara Swisher recently. We're revising what it means to be a human being, and we don't know where the limits of that are yet. But we do know that the idea that it's not here, we're not bound in our bodies, we're not just confined to this planet, is now something which is the hot property of of AI and where it might take us. Maybe we'll look back on OnlyFans when real people set up small businesses to sexually please others as just a fond memory. When AI is powering a lot of the porn we see, and nothing, and no one at all, is real. Next time on Infamous. Whether or not you know her by name, chances are Anna Wintour has influenced what you put on your body. Look, can I just address the elephant in the room? You're wearing your dark glasses. (laughs) They're incredibly useful because um, you avoid people knowing what you're thinking about. What time did you wake up this morning? Five o'clock. What do you usually have with breakfast? Starbucks. How long have you been in this office for? Forever. So in walks Lauren Weisberger. What she knew was being Anna Winter's assistant, so she started writing up what became the Devil Wears Prada. There's some reason that my coffee isn't here. Has she died or something? So then when Anna found out that the book was coming out, her reaction was, I can't even remember who that girl is. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.